The prayer recorded in Nehemiah chapter 9, which we're about to read, uh, resembles in part Ezra's prayer of confession upon his discovery of the problem of mixed marriages in Ezra 9, which we had seen a couple of weeks ago. It has even more in common with certain psalms of confession, such as Psalm 78 or Psalms 105-106, which interweave confession with memories of God's grace and, and notes of petition. The, the prayer follows the biblical story that runs all the way from Genesis to Kings. Uh, it's a wonderful prayer. I, I think we'll agree as we read it. And then it is followed in chapter 10 with a, a commitment of the entire community to return to God in uh, obedience. They essentially re- renew the covenant. And then, <laughs> dot, 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 everything crashes to the ground. Like a complete, complete thud. All of the things that the people promise in chapter 10 that they will do, you know, keep the Sabbath holy, treat the temple as holy, don't intermarry with pagan women, which, I mean, we've already done that in chapter 9. All of these things by the the end of the book, um, nothing's changed. All of the reforms that were proposed by Ezra and Nehemiah, nothing's changed. Uh, And, I mean, the the, the book ends on this terribly uh, downer of a note. What are we to make of such an unsatisfying conclusion? Let's read it first, and, and then we'll address that question. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. And they prayed, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are Yahweh, God, who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and named named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on the dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into the mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven and and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the, the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, 
slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. The, the continuing list of transgressions continues. We skip ahead to verse 29. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, and when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples, but in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. And all that has happened to us, you have been just and you have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. And now see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to to the kings, the, the Persian officials you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, You can sense it's one of the great prayers of the Bible. It it really is. I know it's lengthy, and I even cut part of it out because it was so lengthy, but I thought it important for you to to hear the people at prayer. Today's the last sermon in our sermon series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I was kind of at a loss on how to wrap up this sermon series, in particular because many of the themes that are found in that prayer, they sound kind of familiar, don't they? I mean, they're themes that we have touched on in the book uh, repeatedly about, um, and we've seen the people pray a great prayer of confession like this before. And it's like, well, how do I, how do I end this? Next week, we're going to go to the book of Acts, by the way, but... Um, it dawned on me that when you look at, when you look at everything from the, in a larger framework, the framework of chapters 8 through 13, let's do that just really briefly. Last week, if you recall, we saw how all the people gathered together for a great festival. Seven straight days from morning to night, they read from the Torah. Uh, the people are like lifting their hands, amen and amen, and they're crying and, and weeping as they're convicted of their sin. Um, Then they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, of Booths, which was recounting to them God's faithfulness uh, to them in the uh, the Exodus. Then they pray this in chapter 9, powerful prayer of confession. 
And then in the very next chapter, as I said, chapter 10, they vow to God, we, we will not commit these sins against you anymore. I mean, they basically like sign their names at the bottom of the covenant, renewing the terms of the covenant. And then there's this great celebra- celebration over the temple and the walls that have been reconstructed. Well, <laughs> Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the Persian king, is asked to return back to Persia for a short period of time. What we're guessing maybe, say, 200 days. 200 days later, he comes back to the city of Jerusalem. He tours around the city only to find that the people have not been doing anything of what they promised. And so Nehemiah, if you've read the book, you know uh, what happens. Nehemiah goes nuts. He flips out. He starts beating people. He starts pulling people's hairs out. He runs around saying, Obey the Torah! And the way the book of Nehemiah ends, do you have any idea how it ends? He basically, he prays to God, Lord, please remember that at least I tried. <laughs> please remember that, that at least, at least I, I, I tried to lead the people in, in the right way. And that's how it ends. Like, I, I mean, a complete thud. What would a later Jewish reader of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah think about uh, this? What would, what would they feel when they reached the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, which in the Jewish Bible is, is you know, they're not two books, they're, they're one book. What would they feel? Or, or what, would, what would even a Jewish leader that was alive in that day who witnessed all of this, what would a Jewish leader, the only answer that I could come up with, a, a, a single word, they felt, they felt shame they felt deeply, 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 deeply ashamed. Do this little thought experiment with me for a moment. Imagine you see a little old lady walking down the street at night. She's carrying a large purse, and it suddenly occurs to the, the devilish side of you that she's pretty, she's pretty small and kind of old. It would be very easy to just knock her over and, and steal her purse, you know, grab the purse for yourself. Easy money. You wouldn't do that. I hope you wouldn't do that. Why wouldn't you do that? There are two cultural answers that are normally given to that question. One answer is you would naturally think about the welfare of the little old lady. I mean, she's, she probably depends on that money. She's probably living on a social security. If that's taken from her, what is she going to do? And what a fright that would cause the little old lady. If you knocked her over, she might suffer a heart attack. Uh, if you were in her shoes, you wouldn't want to be treated that way. Uh, all else being equal, you, you, you would want to be treated fairly, and um, you want her to have a good life. And so you think of it in those terms, right? Well, the other answer, classically given, is you don't do it because you would bring shame upon yourself. You know, picking on a, a little old lady. What kind of person do you think you are? Uh, a despicable person, if you do that. It would dishonor your family. Uh, you would despise yourself. And others would despise you for picking on the weak. Now, a college professor gives that scenario to uh, his class. And he asks his students, how many of you would knock the little old lady over? And, you know, nobody, nobody would. Why? Every one of them gives essentially the first answer. Nobody gives the second answer because that's the way that we Americans think. 
But that is not the way that Eastern cultures think, and that's not the way that cultures of antiquity would think. You wouldn't do it because you're trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes. You would do it because you don't want to incur the shame. And a Jewish reader, a Jewish leader, that is exactly what they would have been experiencing at the end of this book. A deep, felt shame. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not at all suggesting that we aren't affected by shame. In fact, I'm going to, I'm preaching an entire sermon right now on the, on the fact that it, it, it profoundly affects our lives. And it oftentimes, shame in our lives goes uh, undiagnosed. But what happened, but what, what I am saying is that we just simply don't normally consciously operate in the categories of honor and shame like they would. Another question for you, what is the difference between guilt and shame? How do you distinguish between those two things? And I've heard it put this way before, guilt, guilt is something you feel when you have done something bad. Shame is something you feel when you are bad. Shame is something you feel when you there's something wrong with me, like something like deeply wrong with me. I don't measure up. I, I am so, so flawed. Um, researchers have described shame as a feeling that is deeply associated with a person's sense of self. In fact, when we are in the grip of shame, it's quite difficult for us to separate ourselves from the shame that we are feeling. Now, shame results in us, uh, can, can t- lodge in us from uh, things that are done to us and, and things that we do. We experience shame. I mean, many of us have felt shame when we were laid off and unemployed for a long period of time, didn't we? Uh, many of us have felt shame when we've uh, lost a huge account at work and it was our fault. Um, maybe we have a family member who's an alcoholic and they display that like broad. Uh, boldly in front of friends or uh, other family members, and we felt shame. Uh, Our child's disciplinary issues at school, or our child's complete lack of interest at school. The dissolution of a marriage. A boss whose motivational tactic is to regularly compare your work to that of someone else who is outperforming you. You know, like each of us have these different places where we experience it. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, where I, have, um, where I have experienced shame the most in my life is very similar to where I think these Israelites were. It's in those moments when you're convicted of, of some sin from like God's word and spirit and, and you want to flee it. And you, you, know, you, you go through what seems like, like this spiritual renewal. You're reading the Bible seven straight days, you know, morning to night. You're, you're praying this like, deep, weeping prayer of confession. You're reflecting about all the mercy and patience God has shown to you over all the course of your life and all your other sins. And you're thinking about how kind Jesus has been to you. And you're journaling in your, your journal, I, will, I promise God I'll never do this again. I promise this, I am turning, right, I'm... And then like what, only a couple days later, uh, maybe a couple hours later, you've fallen back into the, to the very same thing. And, and no, this, this is not a cryptic pastoral confession as though like there's something going on in my life. That's not, that's not the case. I mean, uh, by God's grace, I'm, I'm spiritually doing well and, and I, by God's grace, you know, live a life 
of, of integrity. Like what you see from me is, is, the real, is the real me. But surely I'm not the only person in this room that has, has felt that. that. And what makes it feel so shameful is like after, afterwards, after I said all those things to God, after I considered all God's mercies to me, and then I did this. And you, know, you just crash to the ground and, and you feel just sort of despicable. Is it, does that happen to anybody else? Like these guys. <laughs> I read this, a book this week that I thought was very good on the topic. It's done by Kurt Thompson. It's called The Soul of Shame. He says, one of the hallmarks of shame is its employment of judgment. And here, by judgment, I'm not referring to the necessary everyday process of discern, discernment required by each of us for navigating our lives wisely. Rather, I'm referring to the spirit of condemnation or condescension with which we analyze or critique something, quite often that something being ourselves. You know, I may say to myself, I should have done better at that assignment. Or I may say to myself, you're just a lazy failure. And what is really critical in our judgment are, are the emotional tones that undergird those judgments. Thompson gives an, an ordinary example of how shame builds on itself this, this self-reinforcing loop. He says, you know, a little girl, Allison, brings home her test results to her mother. It shows a score of 92%. And her mother says, well, fine, but what happened to the other 8%? Where's your other 8%? It doesn't take much to imagine what Allison senses and feels at that moment, nor would it be a surprise if you were to learn that in the wake of multiple interactions like this one with her mom, she develops a knack for telling herself, I I should have worked harder. Uh, I've, I've got to work harder. She wouldn't be necessarily aware that such talk was primarily her coping with the shame of not measuring up, However, soon enough, the words we use double back to reinforce the feelings. Allison, by repeatedly telling herself that she's never working hard enough and and therefore she needs to to work harder, she deepens the sensation of felt shame. And hence, an unending loop is created where sensations and feelings beget thoughts that in turn strengthen those sensations and feelings, the felt experience. It's It's that loop. I'm not, I need to be working harder. I'm not working hard enough. I never work hard enough. I'm not working hard enough right now. Um, And all of that, when when you're in that loop, it's just digging you a deeper and deeper hole, isn't it? It's completely demotivating. It's one of the reasons why when we're in that, that loop of shame, we can confess a sin, but we may be very likely to repeat that very sin because because we're just in that self-reinforcing um, yeah, feedback loop. C.S. Lewis in one place said, he said, I sometimes think that shame, mere awkward, senseless shame, does as much towards preventing good acts and straightforward happiness as any of our other vices do. Because it's, it's always self-reinforcing. Another customary feature of shame, and we all know uh, about it, but it bears repeating, is shame's preference to hide. Shame leads us to cloak ourselves in invisibility, with invisibility, to prevent further intensification of the emotion. 
And we, we, we have these involuntary responses even to shame. Like shame, if I'm feeling deep shame, I mean, I may lower my eyes and, and look away. I don't, I don't want to look at you in the face. Um, I, I, I cover myself up. Um, or we, we close off whole parts of our lives to other people. Look, I don't want to look at this part of me, and I certainly don't want you to look at this part of me. We recognize early and often that shame tends to be reinforcing that when we experience shame, we, turn to, we tend to turn away from others because the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away from another, while maybe temporarily protecting and relieving us from the feeling, only serves to deepen the shame. We hide things. We, we have secrets. As, as veterans of Alcoholics Anonymous report, we are only as sick as the secrets that we keep. But shame is committed to keeping secrets and keeping us sick. In shame, we collect multiple secrets. We hide them away in our closet, neatly stacked, kept in our closets, until our closet can no longer contain them and they come tumbling out. Something of this is seen on the very first pages of the Bible, isn't it? With Adam and Eve in the garden, them hiding from God. They were naked. They felt deeply ashamed. They're estranged from God. They're estranged from each other. They're, in the subsequent dialogue, they're blaming each other for what happened. Uh, I don't know if you've ever realized this before. Evil, evil Satan tries to use shame not merely to entice us to disobey God or to, to do something wrong, but to disrupt and destroy the relationships that exist between us. Even though God says to Adam, it is not good for you to be alone, that is exactly the state that shame will keep him alone. Cut off from his wife, cut off from his God, cut off, cut off even from himself. And what I want to um, remind you of, what I want to remind myself of when I'm consciously aware of my own shame is it's God who comes to seek after the man and the woman in the garden. It, when they are hiding, it's God who takes the first step. I mean, Jeff, what you said the, the Thomas, um, was a good one? Thomas Boston? Thomas Goodwin. Uh, Jesus taking, you know, the first steps of mercy towards us, even in his, exalted in his glory in heaven. So, so true. It, it is he who comes after them, seeking them, trying to lead them by the hand, out of their hiding. It, it is he who is always seeking after us because he wants to be with us. Because, because that, to be with another, is at the very heart of the Trinity. I mean, the, the loving relationship shared between the Father, Son, and Spirit is a, is a trinity of being with each other, of, of constant self-giving, vulnerable, and joyful love, Within which, within that place, within the life of the Trinity, there is no air for shame to breathe. There's not an ounce of air for shame to live there in the life of the Trinity. The ever-present movement of these three-part working with one, other, one another, trusting with one another, delighting in one another, that is the, the triune life. Um, there is no air for shame to breathe there, and that's why, that's why evil wants to keep you as far away from it as possible.
No, God doesn't walk away. It feels like God should walk away, doesn't it? it, it we want to walk away from ourselves. And it feels like God should walk away from us. But no, he always takes the first step forward. He takes the first step forward that we might breathe in that air of love and joy. I'm under no illusions that this sermon is, is a comprehensive uh, way to beat your shame um, kind of sermon. Uh, the, the book is quite good. I recommend it. Ed Welch, who I have a lot of respect for, uh, Christian counselor guy, he wrote a great book on, on shame a few years ago. Um, I, what I really hope the sermon might do is, is just make us, maybe make you aware of the, the presence of shame. Because we oftentimes aren't aware of it affecting, ruling even, our lives. Um, and by even just bringing up the topic, maybe, maybe it would make you willing to even consider where it, may, um, where it may be hiding inside your soul. I do have a few thoughts, a few biblical thoughts on overcoming it. I really think that Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2 should be a, a complete life verse for us. Um, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of, of God the Father. You know, uh, maybe I, I probably have told you before, you know, Anya is the one long-distance runner of my kids. She runs cross-country. She had a meet two weeks ago at Kleiner Park in, in Meridian. And I've, I, I run out onto the course, station myself on the course, so I can just be there, you know, halfway through or three-quarters of the way through, just to yell at her, you know, keep going, honey, you're doing great, go boo. But uh, this particular race they, they made a loop and, and they were coming down the straightaway and they're going to double back to get across the finish line. And, and I'm there right, you know, okay, that's the way it goes. I'm standing right here. I realize, oh, the finish line's over there. And so I start running across the field in order to be there at the finish line to, to, to yell at her. And uh, the broses, I almost ran over them. They were standing right there and I didn't even recognize them. And, and, and I, I almost ran over them. And, and they said, it's okay, go ahead. You have a, a daughter who's about to finish. And they, uh, they completely understood so I could be there. And, and we, have, we have a great cloud of witnesses, it says. Who are the witnesses? All the heroes of the Bible are the witnesses. David and Ezra and, and Nehemiah and Abraham and Peter and Paul and, and John, a great chorus of people, the author of Hebrews tells us, cheering us on as we were running towards the finish line. Like We have to keep that great vision, that great vision before our eyes of this cloud of witnesses cheering us on, saying, well done, as we run. Because that's not what shame tells us. It tells us just the opposite. You know, if isolation is, is one of shame's primary methods to keep us sick, you know, creating community groups in a church who, who join with the great cloud of witnesses, cheering us on and providing cheerful celebration of our uh, perseverance is critical to, to the life of every church, isn't it? And it is the opposite of what shame tells us. Shame is telling us you are so flawed, 
you, there's something so terribly wrong, you don't measure up. What we need to hear are the words of, of our Father at Jesus' baptism. As Jesus is coming out of the River Jordan, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. I love you. And since we are united to Jesus Christ, the son, we, the sons and daughters, that is the father's declaration over us for all times, no matter what is happening. We are to hear those words. With you, I am well pleased. Well done. Well done. Um, Especially in those moments when we are not well pleased with ourselves. (laughs) Well done. And then the author of Hebrews says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, which means watching him endure the cross It says that he endured the cross by scorning the shame. What does it mean to scorn the shame? To to scorn the shame is to like look shame in the eye and say, you will not master me. You will not master me. Uh, To scorn the shame sent Jesus to the cross of suffering. It was the shame that would have led him to flee the cross. But to scorn the shame meant that he would, he would, do the hard work of going to the cross. And to scorn the shame is for us uh, doing the hard work of coming out into the light and having our secrets exposed and, and being vulnerable to, to another person. And that is extremely hard stuff to do, but that, that's what we're to see in our Savior. And it says he also did it because of the joy that was set before him. What enabled him to scorn the shame was the joy Friends, the anticipation of joy is ultimately what will motivate you to come out into the light and do the difficult work of overcoming the shame by exposing it to the light. So in conclusion, what are we supposed to do with such an unsatisfying ending to the book of Ezra Nehemiah? Of all the things that set us apart from the rest of God's creatures on earth, one of the major features uh, that stands out, major feature, we tell stories. No other creatures that we know of tell stories the the way that we do. I mean, other creatures communicate. None tell stories. And whether we know it or not, whether we intend to or not, we live our lives telling stories. It's stories that... Stories about ourselves, stories about our world. It helps us make sense of everything that's going on. And not all of us are equally conscious of this, but each of us is living within a story that we believe in and we occupy. On one level, Nehemiah 8 through 13 is our story personally and, and as a church. I mean, we're sinners who sin and sin, sin big time and sin against the grace and mercy of God. Um, Even though that Jesus has done so many great things for us, we sin. But that's not our main story. It's not our main story. Our main story, and what I've taken to do recently, every day is I just read it, uh, as part of my Bible reading, I read a chapter out of one of the Gospels. The Gospels are our story. You, you, You know that, right? That is our story. Because we are united to Jesus Christ, our main story is the story of Jesus' life in the, cosp- in the gospel. And what Paul says in Romans 8, I'll remind you of it. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds uh, on what the flesh desires. And those who live in according to the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. And the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. I mean, to have your mind set on something is essentially what you're paying attention to. Like, what am I paying attention to? 
What am I paying attention to? And Paul says, whatever we pay attention to is deeply connected with those two things. Life and death. Life and peace and death. What, am I pay- what are you paying attention to? Way too often we have uh, the story of shame r- rumbling around. Maybe even rumbling in our, in our subconscious that we're paying attention to. That's not your story. I heard a lovely song this week by a lady. I think she's a Cajun singer. She's definitely from Louisiana. Mary, French-sounding uh, last name, uh, Gautier. Anybody? Mary Gautier. The, the song's titled Mercy Now. Mercy Now. She starts out saying, my father could use a little mercy now. And the first verse talks about her dad. And then she says, my brother could use a little mercy now. In verse two, she talks about her, her adult brother. My church and my country could use a little mercy now. As they sink into a poison pit, it's going to take forever to climb out. Every, little, living, every living thing could use a little mercy now. We could all use a little mercy now. Yeah, we could all use a little mercy now. Hear this line. I know we don't deserve it, but we need it anyhow. I know we don't deserve it, And shame will tell you, it'll tell you so powerfully, you don't deserve it, you don't deserve it, you don't deserve it. No, I don't deserve it. But whatever is the ugly thing which makes me undeserving, that is the thing that triggers God's mercy in Jesus Christ. Our story is God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ. We need a little mercy now. We have that in Jesus Christ. Amen?